0: Welcome to this episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we're glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession.
1: If we don't learn from our history, we're essentially bound to repeat it.
0: Remember that quote. Today we talk to Paul Lombardo, distinguished fellow of the American Academy of Physician Assistants, a very well-known leader and just one of the most generous people on the planet about his history in the profession and about his concerns for the future of the profession. He has a very impressive background and the entire podcast could be taken up talking about his background, but we want to talk to Paul and get to know his thoughts. So I'm going to post his bio on our website with a link to a story about him from the American Academy of Physician Assistants. But I will share a few brief things, which, first and foremost, Paul is known as a leadership guru. He's the first and only PA to have served as the president and chair of the American Academy of PAs, the Physician Assistant Education Association, the National Commission on Certification of PAs, the PA Foundation, and his state PA chapter, the New York Society of Physician Assistants. He's also served as treasurer of the ARCPA, which is the accrediting body for PAs, and is a founding member of the PA History Society and PA Foundation Legacy Circle. Finally, Paul recently received the Eugene A. Stead Jr. Lifetime Achievement Award, which honors a lifetime of achievement that has had a broad and significant impact on the PA profession. It is the American Academy PA's most prestigious award, and he is truly well-deserving of this significant honor. Please join me in welcoming Paul Lombardo. Well, good morning, and thank you so much, Paul, for joining me today, and really excited to hear from your extensive experience as a PA. And the first question I think we'd love to to share is, if you could tell us about your path to becoming a PA. You became a PA, as I recall, in 1973. So tell us, tell us kind of, you know, back then, what was the environment like that led you down this path?
1: Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Kevin. Actually, uh... At the time that I began the PA program, which was in 1971, I was in the inaugural class for Stony Brook. And I had always had an interest in medicine, was a person that didn't have a high enough GPA to get accepted into medical school, was looking at alternatives when a friend of mine who was a cytologist saw this article in the New York Times basically saying that Stony Brook, in collaboration with Long Island Jewish Hospital, which was a big hospital system at the time on Long Island, was collaboratively going to open a new career program called Physician Assistant. And the historical underpinnings of their interest were that there was a guy whose name was Bruner, and he Basically, he was the inventor of the steel cold rolling process, which gets you things like Venetian blinds. And anytime you see, you know, steel being rolled thin like that. And he was treated by a PA at LIJ, and he was so impressed with the treatment that he received. And this is about 1970 that he agreed to put up the initial funding for the program and he offered it to LIJ. But LIJ did not have an academic presence. And so they came to Stony Brook, and collaboratively, they did this program. And interestingly, both of us applied. I got in and he didn't, which is kind, of, kind of an interesting thing. And we were fully funded by a scholarship that he provided. In fact, the first two classes at Stony Brook were fully funded for tuition and expenses. So that's how I got in touch. Like most people, I really didn't know what a PA was.
0: And I was learning as I moved along. And so as you think back to when you first became a PA and, and now after all these years of being in leadership, uh, being in education, what are the key things that you see have changed as a profession?
1: When you're talking about clinical practice, the primary thing has changed is that PAs have gone from initially conceptualized as data gatherers and managers of minor illness to uh, medical practitioners who are now handling the full range of patient problems. And, you know, I think that's a huge expansion and role and one that PAs have earned. I think the educational system has certainly changed in order to adjust to that because the level of acumen that you require to manage patients is a little different from just the data gathering part of it. I think that certainly another thing that's changed is knowledge of and acceptance of the PA as a medical care provider, although we're not certainly where we were, you know, the first graduates came out and when I came out of Stony Brook, you know, half your life was spent with defining for people what a physician assistant was and trying to differentiate yourself, differentiate your title from medical assistant, patient advocate, uh, public accountant. OK, there were just a zillion things that people confuse the, the PA title with. So I'd say those are
0: three of the big changes that I have seen. There's the uh, NCCPA just released their statistical profile for 2020. And, and I'm sure you're not surprised to see New York is the largest right. state for PAs. California is number two. And, and I'm often reminded by one of our alums that uh, he was the first PA to get a license in the state of California. And, and so I'm curious, you know, back in 1973, how many PAs were practicing in license when you first started in you know, like now you're one of the biggest states with the most PA schools in the in the country. What was it like back then?
1: I was number 103 when I registered as a PA. So I'd say initially there were probably anywhere from 100 to at a max 250 PAs in New York State at that time. And it was a small cadre, but it was vocal cadre. And a lot of the people that entered the program were of my generation, which was 60s and 70s. And so there was this real pioneer spirit among my classmates and the people that entered about how we were going to change the healthcare system to make it more responsive to patients uh, for the perspective of access, quality, and cost. And... Support physicians in terms of their role, uh, since there certainly weren't not enough of them in primary care, and in fact, there were probably not enough of them in a lot of specialties, depending on how you looked at it geographically
0: and so that kind of pioneering spirit that you discussed is that what really led you into uh being involved as an active leader in your state at that time?
1: I was very fortunate I'd always been you know in high school and stuff like that I'd always been politically active you know offices, student council, those kinds of things, all right? But when I got into the program at Stony Brook, I was really fortunate to have a mentor, uh, our dean, Ed McTurnan, who basically uh, was steeped in the politics of the American Society of Allied Health Education, uh, or something like that, ASAP, I think it was called, Society of Allied Health Professions, that was it. And he encouraged students to be involved in leadership. And so he invited me to come to a meeting that was their annual meeting with several other students who were politically interested. And... Once I got a taste of it and saw what it was about and what could happen, uh, you know, through involvement, it's just, it took off for me. And I became active in the New York State Society of Physician Assistants, not as a student, but directly after the time I graduated. And so that's, it was sort of a, a fortuitous combination of circumstances, personal interests coupled with... A strong mentor who recognized the value of understanding the profession beyond what you did clinically, but rather what its impact on society, and particularly good, the good for
0: society, could be. And that's what's what to me. And I remember, I wonder if that was part of the modeling of mentorship that you gained that you then did for others, because I remember clearly in Tucson at a PAEA meeting many years ago, you having a dinner where you brought in colleagues that you were offering to just give guidance to and support in their transition or journey to becoming involved in leadership. And that, you know, has to bring you great satisfaction to to do that because I've seen you do that over and over and over again as you've mentored so many to enter in the leadership realm. Tell me more about that kind of motivation to see the next generation of people get involved in leadership.
1: I was fortunate to have people who mentored me who recognized one very important thing about leadership and that is that in the top 5 things that you have to do as jaw as a leader is to bring along your successor which a lot of people forget about and I was fortunate to have people around me who sort of educated me both in the logistics and policy issues and also the interpersonal issues who would introduce you uh, to other people and make you feel more comfortable and a part of what was going on. Even though my knowledge base, I could, I could rate as ignorant in the beginning, the more I associated with those people that had the same interests that I did, not the same beliefs, but the same interests, the more I learned And so I've always thought of mentorship as a, as absolutely a key.
0: So essentially it's a pipeline development for leadership, the active role of mentoring.
1: So I think that leadership breeds leadership to some. So I I like to think of myself as, in fact, I just said this to somebody else the other day. I was in a conversation with another person who uh, just is leaving her board position And she said, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I said, let's face it, Maureen, you're a leadership junkie just like I am. You're going to find yourself doing something because you care enough about this profession that you're not going to just let all the information that you accumulated die because you're going to separate yourself. That's not you. That's not me. And we were at dinner. I said, that's why I'm sitting at the table with you guys. You know, know, because... Yes, it never stops. We help each other. No, you know, I'm convinced we had a long period of time where physicians were largely responsible for our trajectory. And I'm out of that mentality right now. And my firm belief is that PAs are 90 percent responsible for their own trajectory. And then the other uh, stakeholders in our professions and becoming more important than that, I would say, are hospital administrators and practice administrators less so individual physicians, because they're not really controlling the finances or the access to the healthcare system anymore. It's, you know, everybody is merging and forming these larger groups. So I feel very strongly that you have to take the cudgel up for your own profession, not be intimidated. Be don't be threatened by risks, but look for opportunities and know your opponent. If somebody has a counter way of thinking about something, a good leader listens to that, weighs it in the repertoire. If he sees it as a better mousetrap or she sees it as a better mousetrap, then go with it. If not, then state your reasons why you're not going with it and let the chips fall where they may. It's not you that makes the decisions as the leader. It's you who provides guidance and direction. Paul,
0: well, I, I want to congratulate you on the tremendous honor. You you received the most prestigious award from our profession in 2020. You were the recipient of the Eugene A. Stead Jr. Lifetime Achievement Award. And I'm just wondering if you can share a little bit about what that means to you, given everything you've given to this profession.
1: It meant everything. I mean, it's a level of recognition that. I have aspired to, I will not be disingenuous and didn't say that I've, I worked in part for that, okay, because I think it's an unbelievable accolade from your colleagues. And to me, that's the most important thing. And I hope that by having been extended that award, people might look into a little bit more war about what I'm about through mechanisms like this podcast and maybe gain some insights that they didn't have before and by the way it was a huge reason for my involvement with the academy will extend throughout my lifetime until I'm dead in fact i'm being buried with my four pins that i have okay from the leadership positions but fantastic. i'm not about to leave and i We'll say this, I think past presidents of any organization have an incredibly valuable role to play. And I don't think organizations are capitalizing on that cumulative knowledge to the extent that they should. I really do not. Okay. Uh, and I think that's a mistake, basically, because if we don't learn from our history, we're essentially bound to repeat it. And I don't want to repeat some of our past history. I want to go completely forward. And I think we have the capacity to do that.
0: One of my favorite quotes that you will use from time to time. I, I just love it. And, and I've used it recently in something. Uh, I can't remember what, but I said, you know, one of my mentors used to say, and so, so when you left Stony Brook as a graduate, you ultimately ended back at Stony Brook as an as a instructor and then a, de- a department chair at one point. Um, for many, many years. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about kind of those classic coaching tips that you give prospective applicants and how to strengthen their application to become a a really strong candidate for the programs you've been affiliated with.
1: Well, let me say this to you first because you make an interesting observation. And the fact is that I was one of three people in my class who had a baccalaureate degree. I did my undergraduate at University of Missouri. I was an adolescent counsel there and an adolescent counsel afterwards. And so I had an interesting trajectory with respect to that of in getting into that particular position of being a faculty member because the medical school opened up the same year at Stony Brook that the PA program did. I was offered a spot in the medical school. Two of us were because two of the students or several of the students dropped out. One of my colleagues took the spot. I didn't. I was more interested in the pioneer aspect of it, to be honest with you, and the length of time I had to commit to it. So being one of the people, few people with a baccalaureate degree, I was called on, along with another of my colleagues, which was Walter Stein, to join the faculty, basically, because they were a baccalaureate program. Well, that was, that was the year that they started to switch from a certificate to a baccalaureate program. So, you know, the rule in academia is you sort of have to have the same degree or higher in order to instruct in a program. So they were trying to get people with baccalaureate degrees. Uh, There wasn't a position in the program to begin with, and they put me on as what they called assistant interdisciplinary coordinator, which I worked on for about eight months and gave me a a real appreciation of what the roles of other healthcare professionals were in caring for the program. And this wasn't a medical monolith, okay? This was a system with a lot of help from a lot of different people of different backgrounds and skills. And when I looked at that and I looked at some of the backgrounds, one of the things I realized, I don't think there's any one real strong determinant for what I would call an excellent PA candidate. I think it's an amalgam of things. I think that GPA is important, but I think it can be a false flag in that certain people, when put in careers that are made for them, they excel. Okay. And I've seen many, many instances of that, where it's the 3.0 that does much better in the program than the 3.7. I think part of that might be because of socialization factors, you know, how they looked at their education, what they did for it. So I think. GPA is a false flag. I think it's important, but it's not the most important for I think having some clinical experience, not a lot necessarily, but substantive clinical experience makes for a better PA. I think letters of reference are more useful for what they don't say often than what they do say. And when they're negative for any reason, I think that's, that's a flag that I look up. Probably most important in the process is those students that ultimately get to the interviewing process. And there, you know, ultimately what we did was we were throwing more case based questions at students than simple ones like, what do you want? Why do you want to be a PA? Everybody gets that. And so we would throw them case big things like, so you're a PA in in the emergency room and a patient walks in and you prescribe a certain dose of the medication. A physician walks in after you and says, no, I don't want that dose. I want this dose. You know that dose to be lethal. What do you do? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that the correct answer is not to do what the physician tells you to do there. So you're looking for maturity, you're looking for, you can't change a person's ethical compass. What have they done in their history that's demonstrated? It's wonderful to say, oh, I want to serve the underserved and I want to be in a rural community. Tell me what your life experience is like there. I mean, I can give you a specific example of a person that we had in the program. He was convinced... He was going into peds in an inner city area. He, from the very beginning, that's all he talked about. That's what he wanted to do. We sent him on a preceptorship in an inner city area. Guess what? It wasn't what he really wanted to do because so much of it was about basic health. Things like simple public health measures and, you know, hand washing, toothbrushing, reiterating things about vaccinations and things like that. He found it very repetitive, and that's exactly what it was. And ultimately, he didn't go into that. But my feeling was better you should learn about that in the program than go out and absolutely. You know, find himself in a role that he enjoyed or I would say
0: was suited for. I was absolutely convinced I was going to go into orthopedics until I did an orthopedic rotation. And I had this aha moment while in the OR holding traction on a hip for three hours for a total hip replacement. And I just said... You know, with all due respect to my orthopedic colleagues, I know that's much more complex than that. But I just said, I just can't see myself doing this for the next 20 years. I was so set on this like long term Mm -hmm. thing. But yeah, I I, I agree. I think EA school is a great place for them to test things out and make sure they, they have a better sense of what they want to do.
1: I I think that would be a fascinating first-person article to talk about what epiphany had did you have for people that have changed or went into practice? What epiphany did you have during the time you were in a PA program that caused you to select the specialty and what has been right about that decision for you and what has been wrong? Kevin, I got to believe the majority of PAs are like you and I, okay? I was not particularly, I didn't think I was going to be particularly fond of OBGYN. I loved it. Why? Because it was very circumscribed. You could literally learn all the things that you needed to know that were important. Whereas when you were looking at something like general internal medicine or family medicine, and especially family medicine that people rate down, uh, there's nothing more challenging than going to the door and picking up the chart, not knowing what's there. And you got to figure out, and you're bouncing like that. All day, I think that's much more challenging in some ways, that specialties like then specialties like, for instance, rheumatology, where you're repeating the same things on a certain number of patients, and it's almost algorithmic in some ways. Yeah, uh, that's that's a you know a, a little hyperbole, but for for a lot of things, it is. So uh, you know, I have a little bit different view on when it comes to what's complex and how you make choices about things like that. What do you actually want to do? You
0: know, and, and for me, I, I liked the complexity of general internal medicine just from the perspective of reading a mystery novel with almost every patient. So I enjoyed the kind of discovery of trying to figure things out. But that goes to show why it's so important we have a diversity of perspectives entering the profession because we need EAs across all specialties. So Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, so in, in, you know, working with you over the years and you know, you've led all the major organizations of our profession in one way or another, and you've been part of a, a number of consequential decisions that have moved the profession in a different direction in some facet. And I'm sure you have lots of stories related to all the backdoor politics of those decisions, but which of the, all the major decisions you were involved with is maybe the one that you'd consider the most consequential for you?
1: Oh, I would say absolutely, without reservation, the single most consequential one was being the person that basically initiated the move of APAC from out from under the umbrella of the AAPA. By far the most challenging, by far the most risky for me personally, uh, in terms of my political career. I had the executive vice president and the president of the academy at the time tell me I was a traitor. Tell me that, and I'm not paraphrasing here, I'm directly quoting, and being told that at that time there were 80 programs. Did I honestly believe that 80 chiefs were going to subsume their authority to a CFO and a board? And I said, I absolutely do. And, and if I didn't, I wouldn't be in this business. And the most challenging piece of that was sitting across the table from Timmy, Igor Barwick, and I think it was George Haddad who was going to run the CASPA services, which is critical. And this isn't known to most people, but... He asked us specifically, our board meeting was occurring after the time that we were speaking with him about developing a contract. And he asked me specifically, can you guarantee me that your board is going to enter into this contract to develop CASPA? And Timmy looked at me and I said, yes. And I really said yes as president. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, when we then reconvened, that was affirmed by the board. And I'm telling you that there were on that steering group. We had worked two days on bringing at least half of that group into a place where they could consider separating from the academy. And it was very hard work done by successive approximations with people. And I had formed the committee deliberately with at least three of the eight people on there, actually four, were naysayers. They actually wanted us to become, there was one person on there suggested that we become formally just a wing of the academy, like the foundation was, instead of a separate organization. But we managed to do that and get through that. And I give my very good friend, Patrick Knott, credit for following up with that way in, uh, in a manner that really proved that the decision was correct. And look at where P A E A is today and think about where it might have been had that
0: situation not changed. And what was the biggest leadership lesson for you personally from that experience?
1: That without risk, there is no gain you know, I believe in calculated risk. One thing I'm very good at is riding the crest of a wave. I'm not getting out in front of the wave until I've got a little bit of information about what's going on. And that came from my experience as president of the Academy. When in 1988, As part of the, as chair of the leadership committee for the academy, and I believe I was still on the board at that time, I proposed that we have an international symposium on the PA profession to help developing programs overseas or whatever to get a footing and sort of adopt more of the American model. I was literally laughed out of the room saying that Oh, you know, what do we want to do that for? We have another thing here that's not a priority for us, blah, blah, blah. Classic case of being ahead of the waves. Not five years later, the Academy has a person that's developing in their infrastructure with international affairs. And look at where we are today with respect to expansion of the PA profession. I often think if we had capitalized on that opportunity at the time, and by the way, Don Peterson also was intimately involved in promoting that concept, that we might have been into a slightly different place, not that we're in a bad place right now, but maybe you would have been a little bit ahead. So I learned from that, put your finger in the water first and test the... It may be a great idea, but if you can't get people, particularly leadership, and in this case, staff, to buy into it, you probably want to
0: let it sit for a while and come back to it. Let it simmer, yeah. Well, a couple of final questions. One is, if you could look into a crystal ball, what does the profession look like five to 10 years from now?
1: Oh, I love those questions. Can I ask answer 20 years from now since I probably won't be around and I'm not accountable for
0: anything? Say. I, sure, I sure hope not, but yeah, of course.
1: I think, I th- I think profession has got a very uh, bright future. I think the OTP initiative and the title change to me are sort of the precursors for PAs assuming an even more autonomous place in the healthcare system. Frankly, I really like the idea of PAs and physicians and others working together. I think that's the optimal way to go. Unfortunately, even though that may be an excellent model for improving patient care, I don't understand why administrators haven't picked up on this more. Hospital administrators, too, because we heard a lot in testimony, particularly from our PA colleagues out in California, about how that was an obstruction that that name, for instance, In the pantheon of names, puts you at a lower position in the pecking order. And by the way, that same thing is true in England and India, where assistance has a totally different connotation in terms of their tiering of health professionals than it does here. And this is not a problem exclusive to the US, okay? And I think they're going to catch up, and I think they're going to catch up because. I just look at the pairing before we talked. I look at the matching numbers for primary care specialties in medicine. It's abysmal. I mean, it's unbelievable. Nobody's choosing. So who's going to do this work? Right. I mean, NPs have you know stepped in there too, and PAs have stepped in there, but. Medicine isn't going to solve this problem, not unless states start saying we're only prime GME for for people that are going into medically underserved areas or in medically underserved professions, or they alter the system with some other financial incentive. Because I don't see they've been talking about changing this for how long now? Okay. Yeah. Decades to my recollection. And nothing's happened. They're not moving the needle. And they don't want you to see stuff like that because those are the things that really make a difference to the majority of the populations that cannot
0: access self-care. Yeah, I mean, this is where you see innovation in society all the time is where there are gaps that are not being filled by the government or big corporations and other people with an innovative mindset say, well, we can meet that need. And and they do so and often do it more efficiently and more cost effectively. And so that might to be true. We'll find out. 20 years from now, we'll we'll play the tape and see what it it shows then. I just want to thank you personally for being such a a strong mentor over the years for me. I think I am very fortunate to have uh, worked with you all these years and have learned so much from you, as so many have. And I know that you are kind of in an adjustment period with your retirement now, but uh, you you have so much to offer. You, You always will. And we really do appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts with our audience. It's truly been my pleasure, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you very much. I want to thank our distinguished guest, Mr. Paul Lombardo, for sharing his insights about the profession and his reflections about the history and future challenges of healthcare, including the role of PAs in helping to solve the needs of society. Tune in next week as we meet with one of our partners in this venture, Ms. Stephanie VanderMeulen, Department Chair for the Department of Health Professions, program director for the PA program at the Creighton University School of Medicine in Omaha, Nebraska. Steph and I will most likely delve into our shared vision for this podcast, highlight some of her incredible contributions to the profession as a national and state leader, and share her vision for her program. Until next time, I wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of the University of Southern California.